Welcome to the next Lawcast in CMS's series. This is the third Lawcast focusing on Master Trusts. My name is Caroline Karoop and I'm joined on this Lawcast by my colleague Chris Ransom. I'd first refer you to our previous Master Trust Lawcasts through which we covered the Master Trust landscape, transitioning DC schemes into a Master Trust, governance considerations and developments in the investment sphere. In this lawcast, we focus on a few anticipated industry developments in 2021 and on a list of what we consider to be key hallmarks of a well-run master trust and the importance of continuous iterative improvements. So I'll start now by talking about small pots consolidation to tackle the growing issue for master trusts of small unclaimed deferred pots. The growing number of small pots within DC master trusts and DC occupational pension schemes more generally is becoming a really significant issue for the industry. Let's just look at the numbers. The introduction of auto enrollment in 2012 greatly increased workplace pension participation. As of September 2020, approximately 10.4 million individuals have been auto enrolled. But it has been estimated that by 2035, the number of deferred pension pots in master trusts could reach 27 million without intervention. The existence of small pots which are left unclaimed causes issues for master trusts and members alike. For the provider, they're uneconomic to the extent that it has been suggested that a failure to address the problem in due course could result in financial instability of master trusts. For the members, their small pots can be eroded by basic member charges over time. In some cases, the higher proportionate administration costs are in effect cross-subsidized by those members with larger pots which raises issues of inequity. Solving this growing issue is therefore in the interests of all parties. In September 2020, following a Pensions Policy Institute report issued in July, the DWP set up a working group to investigate and develop potential solutions. In the group's view, the aim should be to make consolidation of small pots the norm, using both automated solutions and member-led solutions. The project is clearly in its infancy, with the output so far developing a framework and a roadmap for next steps. Now is the time for Master Trust to focus on the shape of the possible solutions. So what are some of the possible solutions under consideration and how do they compare from the perspective of Master Trust providers? I'd like to touch on a selection. Firstly, member-led solutions were explored. One option under consideration was the voluntary pot follows member option where members are responsible for ensuring that deferred pots are transferred to their new providers, for example, on a change of job. The member would need to provide instructions or else the pot is left behind. It was recognised that many members may not be sufficiently engaged to supply previous scheme details and make the required decisions on transferring pots. The lifetime provider model, where members can remain with one provider throughout their working life, has three sub-options. One, where the member is asked to select whether to stay with their old provider or move to the employers. One, where the employee would be able to choose their pension provider from a carousel of approved providers, and the default would be the provider scheme from the carousel. And one where the default is that the employer makes contributions automatically to the member's existing provider unless they opt to move to the employer's scheme. The main issue with this model is that it was deemed to break the connection between the employee and the employer leading to disengagement by the employer of the provision of retirement for their workforce. This model also poses a risk of selection, whereby master trust providers might be inclined to prefer certain types of workers who are easier to serve, namely the economically valuable ones. Next, attention was turned to scheme-led solutions. 
The report highlighted two automatic consolidation models which should be prioritised for deferred small pots in the automatic enrolment space and which could be used together. The first is the automatic pot follows member solution, whereby an employee's pension pot moves with them and transfers to the new employer's scheme when an employee changes jobs, subject to an ability to opt out. A second is the default small pot consolidation scheme, which could offer everyone a default scheme consolidating only deferred pension pots while the member's active pot remains in the employer's chosen scheme. One of the concerns expressed, however, is that there may be inadvertent competition issues that develop, whereby it's more favourable for a provider to become a consolidator than a traditional style of provider. The report also considered member exchange. This model uses a third-party data service to conduct regular checks and identify matches where they hold a deferred small pot and another provider appears to service the active version of the pot. While this, like auto-enrolment, relies on member inertia, careful thought needs to be given to extending this to contract-based schemes and issues around member consent and the role of the trustee needs to be considered. Finally, a word on same scheme consolidation. The report noted that for pension providers holding multiple pots for the same members within charge cap default funds, the direction of travel should be to consolidate pots. It noted that some master trusts were already undertaking some form of same scheme consolidation where appropriate data points were matched, but there were difficulties in rolling this out across the board. For example, where there are different pricing levels or where bespoke employer pricing is offered. In summary, the report clearly finds that some scheme-led solutions, avoiding the risk of member inertia, will be required to deal with the challenge of small pots, but a combination of solutions is almost inevitable. The key for master trusts will be to try to influence the direction of travel so that this significant problem is solved without creating a host of new ones for providers. It will be interesting to watch how various policy initiatives, for example, relating to the revision of charging structures and the introduction of the pensions dashboard, interact when it comes to the problem of small pots. Another area for Master Trust to keep an eye on over the next few months are increases to the general levy payable. By way of background, the general levy on pension schemes recovers the funding provided by the DWP to meet the work of the pensions regulator, the pension ombudsman and some activities of the money and pensions service. Not surprisingly, the public funds have come under increased pressure in recent times and the levy is expected to be operating with a deficit of 80 million this year and expected to rise to 230 million by the end of 23-24. The rise of Master Trust authorization forms part of the justification under these proposals for Master Trusts to see an increase in the level of levy they're charged. The government is considering three options to address the deficit and increase levy rates. The first option proposes a 10% increase to the levy for defined benefit and defined contribution schemes other than master trusts, and a 5% increase for master trusts and personal pension schemes in 2021 and 22. Higher increases would then be implemented in 23 and 24. The second option would increase rates and introduce a separate lower rate for master trusts. Interestingly, the consultation flags the ongoing work in relation to small pots and states that action flowing from that work could have a bearing on the issues in relation to small pots and the levy that have been highlighted. The third option retains the existing levy structure and just increases the rates. The government's not attracted to this option, however, as it would fail to make the structure more equitable and to address the existing cross-subsidies. The DWP consultation just closed on the 27th of January. 
It will be interesting to see the responses from the industry to these options and to follow where the government moves next. I'll now pass over to Chris to discuss the default fund charge cap and to outline some best practices for master trusts. Thanks, Caroline. Yes, a further recent development which will be interest to master trusts is the government's response to review of the default fund charge cap. Last August, the DWP's deadline for the pensions industry to provide feedback on its call for evidence closed. Having had time to consider the responses, the DWP published its response to this call for evidence earlier this year on the 13th of January. In its response, the DWP confirmed that it would not be changing the level of the default fund charge cap, nor would it be including transaction costs within the charge cap at this time. Of particular interest to master trust providers, however, is the proposal of a prohibition on flat fees on automatic enrolment default funds, where the member's investment in one or more pots is £100 or less. Percentage charges applicable as part of a combination charge can still be applied, but the prohibition on flat fees for funds at this day minimum level is something which the master trust industry has sought to resist for some time. The DWP has however recognised that pushback from the industry to an extent in that it has said that the £100 level will be kept under review, with a view to increasing this over time. We shall see how this develops. So along with the investment related changes which Jay and Tom spoke about in our last lawcast, there were certainly quite a few legal developments coming for Master Trust to think about. I know that there'll be even more in the future. Finally, in terms of the here and now, we thought we'd end our series of lawcasts on Master Trusts by looking at some of the hallmarks of a well-run Master Trust. As we all know, DC Master Trusts are subject to the pensions regulators' authorisation and ongoing supervision regime. This has naturally encouraged good governance among DC Master Trusts generally. The pensions regulator has also publicly commented that DC Master Trusts, subject to its authorisation and supervision regime, should be regarded as among the better run pension schemes. In October 2020, the Pensions Management Institute's Master Trust Working Group launched their thought leadership report on governance as a driver on member outcomes. The report explored what good governance meant in the context of a DC Master Trust. It commented that the regulator's regime focused on being member first, recognising the importance of the decisions taken by trustees and providers about the operation of the trust for members' outcomes. However, the message from the report was clear. The regime sets minimum standards which master trusts are required to meet if they are to continue to meet the authorisation requirements. It is open to every master trust provider, however, to go beyond those minimum standards, with benefits possible through making constant improvements over time. It's difficult to disagree with those comments. The PMI report also identified some of the key features of high governance standards for master trusts. These included operating in accordance with documented structures, legal requirements and best practice standards, articulating a delegation decision-making framework so all those responsible for running the trust understand their role, and where appropriate, creating a boundary between the interests of the member and the interests of the master trust provider. This demands a clear understanding of roles, responsibilities and accountabilities, and requires the trustees and providers to have a clear purpose and strategic objectives. Advisors therefore certainly have a key role to play in ensuring that the master trust continues to function effectively and efficiently within the master trust's governance structure, meeting these key objectives. Other features of good governance flow naturally from the pension regulator's authorisation and supervision regimes, and also the regulator's expectations set out in the DC Code of Good Practice, first published in July 2016. These include things like 
processing core financial transactions promptly and accurately, ensuring systems and processes are robust, and closely assessing value for members, managing costs and charges, and disclosing these effectively to the members. As also referred to in the PMI report, there are other elements which contribute to good governance. Firstly, putting the right structures and procedures in place to enable effective, timely decisions, to provide clear scheme objectives, and to appropriately identify, evaluate, and mitigate risk. Secondly, having diverse trustee boards and decision makers with the right skills, experience, qualities, and capacity to run the pension scheme effectively in line with members' best interests. Thirdly, being prepared for unforeseen events to enable business continuity. Now, the current COVID-19 pandemic has shown that a scheme's ability to react effectively to change has been important, with some schemes coming under significant pressure. Part of good governance also involves ensuring member data is complete and accurate and is stored securely, something which has been brought into sharper focus since 2018 with the introduction of the General Data Protection Regulation. Another item which is important to good governance is appropriately communicating with members and employers in the right format, with the right content being provided at the right time, and also providing information to support members' investment choices and retirement decisions. The use of technology such as apps has an important role to play as part of this process. Continuously monitoring and improving the quality and impact of governance and holding service providers to account are also important. And we're increasingly finding schemes choosing to self-evaluate, and this can be helpful in identifying areas for future improvement. It should also not be forgotten that having a well-run master trust not only benefits the members in addition to the provider itself, but can also be a key feature in an employer's final decision when selecting the most appropriate master trust for its employees and former employees. The view being that members benefit from better outcomes in terms of building up their pension and choice of access, which the industry should aspire to. But the path to establishing truly best-in-class governance is a continuing process. As legal requirements and regulatory guidance develops, master trusts must react, industry will comment, and over time best practice will develop. Governance, after all, should never really be about box ticking, but establishing and delivering strong working practices which benefit members, employers and the provider alike. There was an interesting survey conducted recently by Occupational Pensions that really demonstrated these points. It considered how 12 of the largest master trusts dealt with the new disclosure requirements introduced from 1st of October 2019 and 1st of October last year in relation to their statements of investment principles. By way of reminder, from 1st of October 2019, regulations required DB and DC schemes with at least 100 members to specify their policies in relation to financial material considerations, including those relating to ESG factors such as climate change and how those considerations are taken into account. They also are required to specify their policy in relation to the exercise of voting rights, stewardship and engagement, and the extent, if at all, to which members' views on non-financial matters are also taken into account. From 1st of October last year, the same regulations have also required DB and DC schemes to outline their policies in relation to how they monitor the companies in which they invest on capital structure, how targeted portfolio turnover or turnover ranges to be defined and monitored, how they manage actual and potential conflicts of interest in relation to their engagement, and key details relating to their arrangements with their asset managers. That is a huge amount to digest and report upon. The research conducted by Occupational Pensions concluded that Many disclosures in the new areas were tending towards broad brush. On their view, some of the detailed disclosure requirements appeared not to have been met. And in many instances, it wasn't clear how those responsibilities which had been delegated to investment managers were being monitored on an ongoing basis. 
Assuming the conclusions are correct, this is a good demonstration of the fact that establishing new, very thorough disclosure requirements represents only the first step in achieving the best standards of governance in this space. The next step is the industry working at how best to put those requirements into practice, developing a set of market norms to which the best players will conform, and then reporting accurately on their successes. I'll now pass back to Caroline to close. Thanks, Chris. As ever, it looks like the developments in the field of pensions continue at rapid pace this year, especially for master trusts. We thank you for joining us for the third CMS Pensions Lawcast in this Master Trust series. We hope that you found it useful and have enjoyed listening. We hope you can join us for our next Lawcast, which will be released in a fortnight. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you.